welcome to Enduring Interest. I'm your host, Flag Taylor. I teach in the political science department at Skidmore College, and my writings have appeared in venues like the American Interest, Modern Age, National Review, and Law and Liberty. From the unjustly neglected to the often cited but seldom read, and from the underappreciated to the just plain obscure, the Enduring Interest podcast aims to give important books and essays a wider audience. Some works will allow us to revisit permanent questions, while others might provide a unique or forgotten perspective on a very contemporary problem. We hope to educate and entertain and take listeners away from the pressure of the latest news cycle. This episode concludes our series on liberal education. Next up will be a series on race, identity, and American culture, and another series on war. If you have suggestions for books or guests for either of these topics, please message us on Twitter. Our handle is at the EIPod. With this episode, I'm very pleased to have four of my previous guests in the Liberal Education Series back to discuss some common themes in the work of Leo Strauss, Michael Oakeshott, and Hannah Arendt. Rita Kuganzen is the Associate Director of the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy and Assistant Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia. Her first book, Liberal States, Authoritarian Families, Childhood and Education in Early Modern Thought, examines the justifications for authority over children in modern political thought. Her research and essays have been published in the American Political Science Review, the Review of Politics, as well as in the Hedgehog Review, National Affairs, The Point, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Elizabeth Corey is an associate professor of political science at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Her writing has appeared in a variety of popular and scholarly journals, including First Things, National Affairs, The Wall Street Journal, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Michael and Catherine Zuckert are both Nancy Reeves Drew Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. Catherine's most recent book is Machiavelli's Politics, and Michael recently completed a book manuscript called A Nation So Conceived, Abraham Lincoln and the Paradox of Democratic Sovereignty. And they've co-authored two books, The Truth About Leo Strauss and Leo Strauss and the Problem of Political Philosophy. Well, welcome back to all of my former guests uh, to this kind of capstone episode of my series on liberal education. Uh, Michael Zuckert, welcome back. Thank you. Hello. Hello, Catherine. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Flag, thank you. Good, good. Uh, Hi, Rita. Hi. And hello, Elizabeth. Hello. It's good to be here. Yeah, great. So um, we had great individual episodes on all these authors, so I thought it would be fun to to, um, get back together and so I could talk about them together. Um, there are a lot of different themes in, in common, obviously. The, the one I'd like to start with uh, is this question of tradition. I think all of the authors, uh, in one way or another, some more explicitly than others, argue that um, liberal education has to be grounded in a tradition, but then it also has to have this liberating, or should have rather, this liberating effect. I noticed that I don't even think the word tradition comes up in either Strauss essay. I did a quick quick scan this morning, so I'm 90% certain that that's true. Um, I don't think it comes up in Oakshot uh, either. Tr- uh, Arendt mentions it a few times, and um, Eva Braun is the one who who makes it one of her three central paradoxes. She's the one who actually talks the most about it. Um, so it's interesting to, to me, too, that maybe the least conservative person, the one who's not a conservative at all, Arendt, is may, maybe the one who talks about it the, the most. Um, so maybe we just start start there. This question of tradition, Eva Braun says, um, she, she points towards the need for reverence, and she says reverence is a universal educational problem. And so just maybe just start with the question of what, in what way 
do these authors think a kind of reverence is is what required when we approach the the great books, or or do they at all? Maybe maybe some of them, right, would disagree with Brand's statement. So, who wants to to dive in? Uh, okay, I'll dive in um, for Strauss. I don't. His main concern is philosophy, and he insists, in order to understand philosophy or to us as um, citizens of the modern world from the contradictory opinions that we have inherited but have not examined that we need to study this history. But he very much, well, he celebrated actually Heidegger in his exchange with Jacob Klein, Andrew Bond's colleague, thanked Klein for having shown him that Heidegger had made it possible um, for us afterwards to question the entire tradition and to give a fresh reading of the old text. So yes, he, and he's in other words, he's very critical of people who defend the tradition per se. Right. So maybe it's not, it's not an accident. You don't, you don't see that word <laughs> in, in either, in either essay, if I'm right about that. Uh, anyone want to add anything on, on Strauss? Uh, I mean, one of the things that Strauss, um, I mean, as Catherine said, he, he uh, he didn't want to take the in a way the tradition as he saw it was a hindrance. It got in the way of our ability to look afresh at the questions and to capture the good or the proper starting points for philosophizing. So he saw the need to somehow get free from the tradition as just as important as trying to recapture somehow the works that had been part of the tradition. And one other thing I would mention is that he frequently called attention to the fact that traditions always had some beginning point. So there was always some radical break or some radical innovation that stood at the head of a tradition. And what he was most interested in was getting back to that rather than sort of dwelling on the evolving tradition. Uh, in this regard, I think we see the marks of Heidegger in uh, in Strauss's work. Interesting. Um, how about Oakshot or, or Rent? Where would you all Elizabeth and Rita. Yeah, Elizabeth, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you point out that Oakshot doesn't tend to use the word tradition because you're right, he doesn't. The word he does use, though, is, and he uses this uh, it, at great, well, he talks about it at great length in his uh, Voice of Liberal Learning, is the notion of inheritance, mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting because if you compare, uh, you know, what he thinks of as an inheritance to um, to a normal inheritance, it's, it's a very different idea. I mean, a normal inheritance, you just you just receive uh, upon reaching a certain age, you just take it. Um, but he says, you know, this this inheritance that liberal learning can be is has to be acquired through through study and through work. Um, I, I think he's I think he's indirectly talking about a tradition of learning or, you know, the, what the university has done over the past thousand years is a kind of tradition but but it's interesting to me that he he speaks of it as an inheritance and also as one that has to be um, with some labor uh, taken over and not just acceded to because because of um, sort of natural endowments yeah I noticed in a couple of places in in um in in the essays that we had looked at for our episode Elizabeth he where you would you might have expected him to use the word he he uses um, great intellectual adventure <laughs> adventures in human self understanding right these these things that kind of point in that direction but 
certainly a little bit, little, little bit different. Yeah, and and what I, I might also say that I'm glad you brought up the notion of adventure because I think that's actually uh, so maybe inheritance on the one hand and adventure on the other in the sense that you are taking something that is handed down to you, but it it's not static. It doesn't. It's not that it's some unchanging body of works that that um, you just accept. I mean, there's this wonderful Mahler quote. Um, uh, Gustav Mahler, tradition is preserving the fire and not worshiping the ashes. And I think Oakshot would certainly be in agreement with that, that, you know, the, the fire is a tradition of sorts, but it's not simply that you take it and, and accept it without, without question. Uh, you have to digest it and make it your own. And Rita, how about uh, Hannah Arendt? Where would you kind of situate her with respect to the, I don't know, need for one or well, I think tradition is like a really central problem for her. I mean, she has in the um, the book collection, the essay collection that contains her essay on education between past and present, there is an essay, what was tradition is what it's titled. Um, and, you know, that for her, this is the sort of whole problem of the modern crisis that the tradition has been has collapsed and World War II is sort of the mark of the collapse of the tradition, the rise of totalitarianism, the mark of the, the collapse of the tradition. Um, and so the whole project that she's sort of undertaking in that essay collection is to try to excavate what it was. And for her, the importance of tradition is that tradition is the source of authority. Tradition is authoritative. And that's what made authority, the idea of authority work in Western thought is that it was always backwards looking and that it sort of bound you to something without coercing you and without persuading you. It was just that, you know, the, the ancestors or the tradition compelled you uh, and you sort of voluntarily assent to that because they have no sort of coercive power over you. Uh, and so the the it, in the realm of education, I mean, the education essay comes kind of at the end of the book and, or it's one, I think the second to the last essay. And for Arendt, the realm of education is sort of the exception in some ways to, to the modern, to, to how we would otherwise approach the modern problem, right? We have to understand that in modernity, the tradition is dead. Um, we have to understand that in modernity, well, contemporary modernity, authority is dead, but that's just a kind of nihilism that leads to totalitarianism. So how would we reconstruct it? Well, education is kind of the realm where we suspend that understanding and we act as though authority is still valid and we act as though the tradition is still valid uh, for the purpose of educating children, the young, into a possibility of reconstructing the world after the collapse of <laughs> tradition and authority, right? So, I mean, it's a very strange and kind of contradictory position that she's in, um, which I think is analogous to the sort of the problem of authority and liberalism, that it's not really, doesn't really fit in. Um, but for the sake of educating children, you do educate them in the tradition. And I mean, her model, not explicitly in that essay, but fairly clearly is the German gymnasium and the sort of educational program or curriculum of the German gymnasium, which is a very sort of classical education by our contemporary understanding. So we don't want progressive education because it assumes too much about the future. In fact, it forecloses the future for children themselves. They're sort of foreclosed from making it themselves because it's adults imposing a vision of the future on them. Uh, and so what we have to do is educate children in this sort of backwards looking way in a tradition so that their natural spontaneous originality is sort of channeled and freed so that when they are adults and they are sort of able to have a, an impact in the world, uh, that if their newness won't be foreclosed by the current generation of adults forcing them into a certain kind of mold. 
Um, but it is really at odds with the larger problems of the modern moment, which is that it the tradition doesn't really have a hold on us anymore and isn't authoritative anymore and is not a source of authority for us. Maybe if I can just push this, push us a little further into this this question about the the potential need for for reverence that that Brand exercises. Maybe the one way to think about it is as a question of rhetoric that Oakshot might be using these, you know, adventures and self-understanding as a in part because he thinks that will be more attractive to people than if you just speak about the need for a tradition, then it sounds kind of old and and stuffy and, and boring and people will turn up their people will turn up their noses. And so I, I guess I understand that that as a just as a potential question of what's going to be most attractive to to students. And if we if we do need to kind of reinvigorate interest in the substance of the tradition, right, then we have to think about how to talk about it in a, in a way that's going to make it attractive to people. But I think Brand is pointing to something interesting in, in her emphasis on the at least partial need for reverence, because I, I was thinking about, you know, students today, if they come to class thinking that the books that they're supposed to read are, are not special in some way, it's very hard to get them to kind of dig into the book, given how hard it is. <laughs> so if you if you don't come into class sort of disposed, at least in part, already thinking, oh, I don't know anything about Plato, but I know that, you know, he's part of this grand thing that I should be interested in, even if I'm not. <laughs> right. But now you don't even have that. It's like they like every every I don't know if you've had this experience. My students now write that every book is a novel. Right in Locke's novel, you know, da 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 da, in, in papers, and you're like, what? What's up? Um, <laughs> so, um, I guess does anyone want to just take up this this question of how to make, how do we attract? I guess a certain disposition in how students, you know, approach these books. If we're not going to say, look, there's this grand tradition that is really important, you should be interested in it. Yeah, Elizabeth. Well, I think I think we do have to put it forward as um, a, a grand tradition, especially for beginners. I mean, for precisely the reason you say that if we just say, well, these are a bunch of books and they're old and they're hard, you know, what what student is going to do that when when he or she could do something that's a lot easier? I mean, it, it's interesting to me. Uh, Baylor has a has a program called the Great Text Department, and it was established about 20 years ago. And I was reflecting the other day on the impossibility of putting that department into place in the present moment, because there would be such an objection to the very use of uh, the notion of the that certain texts were great and that we could say what they are and that they often tend to be part of the Western um, intellectual tradition. So, I mean, that's that seems to me to be something that has, has gotten worse over the past um, really 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, the notion that we could even proclaim <laughs> that there is a tradition and that it's uh, there, there's good in that tradition. I mean, I think I think the task is to maybe start out with the, the young student coming and saying, yes, this is a great tradition. I want to immerse myself in it. And then the criticism can, can come by the by. I mean, sort of later as you go. I mean, Alan Jacobs uh, is a colleague of mine here at Baylor, and he's written a great book called Breaking Bread with the Dead. And in that book, he, he's, he basically gives a very nuanced account of, of how we ought to approach the tradition. Yes, uh, there's all sorts of stuff that the modern mind would find objectionable, but no, that doesn't mean we throw out the tradition as a whole. Um, and, and he takes on certain works and, and, and discusses them in detail. And I think that's 
I mean, at a certain level, a student needs that too. But I, I think at the beginning, as you say, they need to be said, told, yes, it's an adventure. It's, it can be a wonderful adventure, but you have to be willing to suspend your critical uh, consciousness for a, for a while to, to see what's there. Mm-hmm. Anyone else on this? Yeah, well, I wonder if the, um, uh, of our situation, our rhetorical situation, the situation of our students or the general uh, intellectual milieu isn't actually rather different from the thinkers that we're talking about now, the situation that they faced. Um, the stuff Elizabeth was just talking about, I don't think Strauss faced a, a world like that. And therefore his rhetoric or the kind of appeal he made, the thought that's, that his thought of what needed to be uh, understood now was at least not directed in that, in that direction. I mean, he had his famous, uh, his famous uh, polemics against uh, positivism and historicism. They, that now sounds a little dated, even though I think at bottom, that's still relevant, but people don't talk or think that way. Those don't seem to be the powers that he thought that they were. So I'm not sure that our thinkers directly address them. I suppose we could engage in the novelistic enterprise of trying to figure out, well, what would they say? <laughs> right. Situation. Um, and I mean, that's no doubt worthwhile. And all of us probably have to go through something like that as we face our own teaching ex- uh, experience and situation. Go ahead, Catherine. Yeah. Um, I just happen to be teaching Nietzsche right now, and the thing that the students were interested in in the class, and they were very interested, is his conception of the sovereign individual, and they wanted to know who who that person is and how, and basically how one could become one. Um, and, and in the discussion, um, we talked about the tendency um, still of universities and high schools to emphasize what's called critical reasoning. Um, and you know, he chose a good example, critical reasoning leads to nihilism um, and no growth. So students can understand why the way that they should approach a reading is not to say what they find wrong with it, but they don't have the equipment, but they have the desire to get a different approach. How do I get something positive out of these books? Um, and I think, Maybe this is just a a confession of my own um, limitations, but there's a difference in the context between a religious institution like Baylor or um, Notre Dame, where there is such a thing called the Catholic tradition, and then you can go through that, and a secular university that prides itself on taking anybody and everybody, like ASU, that requires a different approach. And I now feel as if I have both those people in my class. Pick an audience, right? Yeah, it's hard to, hard to appeal yeah. to both those constituencies. Rita, any thoughts on reverence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I think for Arendt, it's a little difficult to put her into this question because she's not really talking about universities. She's talking about primary and secondary education. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, I don't want to distort her her argument here, but... For her, the the way to get people interested in this stuff is through the authority of the teachers. That if the teachers have authority, the, the problem with the students, I mean, again, this will be less true, obviously, at the university level than at the level of a you know 10-year-old, is that they don't know what they're interested in and they don't know what's interesting. And so they're looking for guidance to sort of point them to what they should be interested in. And then that is actually what they come to find interesting. And so, I mean, I think a rent's insight is that when teachers give up authority, 
that kind of authority, that sort of guiding authority, then, you know, and, and they're sort of asking what progressive pedagogy asks them to do is to find what's interesting to the students and work with that. But the problem is that the students don't have any interests. And so they're, they're finding nothing. Um, and sort of, you know, in a way they end up smuggling what they think is interesting anyway. I mean, that's sort of the contradiction of, ped of progressive pedagogy is that it's like, you're not supposed to be teaching the students. They're supposed to be organically discovering in themselves knowledge, but like you program that whole classroom, right? You're guiding them and it's all indirect. <laughs> I mean, Rousseau just has shown already in the meal how much, you know, actual authority is involved in eliminating authority. Uh, but so, you know, there's a kind of lie in the progressive pedagogy that makes it seem like that's authentically an outgrowth of the child rather than it, and it's sort of something that the teacher is putting into the child. And so Arendt is, you know, says, well, just dispense with that illusion, right? Make the teacher authoritative and that it will sort of orient. And if, if, if the students really find the teacher to be authoritative, they will orient themselves around what the teacher proposes as interesting. And they will find it interesting if they think that the teacher really knows something, knows something valuable that's worth knowing. Um, and so that I think does still apply to some degree at the university level, which is that, you know, students, you know, we, we tend to see as, you know, democratically see students as coming in with all of these interests of their own and, and sort of already formed. And it's our job to sort of find ways to engage with this pre-existing substratum of their conscience. Um, but maybe that's not really the case, right? Maybe they too are unformed and looking for what to be interested in. Uh, and that what interests them ends up being sort of what looks which of their teachers look to be the most knowledgeable, authoritative, engaged in some project that is actually valuable. And they're actually pretty open. It may be the case that that's, you know, Plato uh, or Aristotle in a certain kind of context. I mean, that was certainly the case of my undergraduate education at Chicago. The most interesting people were doing that. And I mean, I don't know who these people were, Plato and Aristotle, but it seemed like that's where all the smart people were. And so I just migrated over there. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, that that's very sort of context dependent. That's something that institutions can set up internally. Um, I mean, maybe that goes back to your point about the difference between a religious institution and a secular institution. Um, that's something that can be you have some kind of control over the internal environment of the institution that ends up directing students in you know ways that maybe they didn't come expecting or, you know, that sort of channels their own desires to learn into concrete objects that they haven't actually settled on yet. I guess I would, I would uh, at least disagree partly with that. Uh, it seems to me the students nowadays come, uh, yes, they come unformed mostly, but they don't realize that. And they, they are formed by certain opinions they have, which tend to be disqualifying of some of the things we would like to open them up to. So Aristotle and Plato, well, they ex accepted slavery. Therefore, we just reject them. Uh, Thomas Jefferson accepted was a slave owner. Therefore, we reject him. In other words, there's a whole table of rejections that they have on their plates. I'm not quite sure what their acceptances are other than the negation of those particular things. So I think I think the, the situation, I mean, they're not quite, at least, I don't think they're quite as open-minded maybe as you're, as Rita's suggesting, but sometimes you can, you can reach them. I wonder if it's, if it's not more effective to just go ahead and teach it and trying to show them, yes, hey, this really is interesting. And without giving them a lot of prelude and, and justification in advance 
mm. because I think that does actually work when when one succeeds at it. Yeah, that that's an interesting. Yeah, because I struggle with that myself in my own teaching. Right, how to whether to kind of um, how, how much justification kind of do you need at the outset of an introductory to political philosophy course, right? Or do you just you know dive in and start reading? And yeah, so I've I've sort of tried. I guess both both models and failed failed at both of them. So I don't know which one. So maybe one works better than the others. I need to need to think about it more. Um, yeah, Elizabeth. Yeah, I I I actually um, I want to be a little bit more hopeful maybe than Michael is. I mean, and I think uh, Catherine's distinction about the religious and non-religious schools is is apt, and maybe also between the elite and less elite schools. I mean, what what we find at at Baylor um, in the Honors College is. Uh, students who are unformed and and looking for formation, they're not ideologically dug in in the way I imagine a lot of elite school students are. Um, and so that's a that's a blessing for us because we don't have to kind of destroy the ideological formation before they they get here. They just don't really have it yet. Um, but the other thing I want to say, building on, on Rita's point, is that it, that personal element, uh, the, the the personal demeanor, the, 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 the teachers, the teacher as an interesting human being, I think can't be underrated um, because isn't it the case that often we find ourselves in classes or we did when we were younger where uh, the, the subject matter didn't interest us, but the professor was so great that we were suddenly won over to the subject. And it can go the other way too, of course. You can, you know, it can be a great subject and a terrible teacher and then you just don't want to take another class in it. But I think that, um, that the kind of authoritative, and it doesn't have to be authoritative in a very um, domineering way, but the, the authority of the teacher in the front of the classroom uh, can be a, of in, an inspiration for students and they wanna be like that person. That is absolutely my experience. And Oakshot talks about this. He said, uh, the, when he learned about the, the beauty of liberal learning was, in a, um, was, was by meeting a sergeant gymnastics instruct, instructor, he said, who taught him um, the in certain intellectual virtues, uh, modesty, respect for authority, um, deference. I mean, these sort of, sort of um, these humble virtues, but that was in a in a gymnastics class, you know. So it it can it can be potentially um, in any in any any kind of uh, field mm -hmm. that that you can find this kind of inspiration. Yeah, Catherine. Um, that's actually where I I found it. An overlap between my own experience, but also in the authors that we've been considering. There's just it's maybe it's not a throwaway line, but early in Strauss's um, essay about um, responsibility, what he says is he's devoted himself to education, and the most important aspect of education is the character of the teacher and the character of the student, um, and the teacher has to take well, for him, his or her responsibility very seriously. And that means, you know, preparing yourself and having knowledge that um, you think is valuable, but always then thinking about the people to whom you're trying to impart it. Yeah, may, I mean, maybe that we can connect connect that to um, one of the other, you know, topics on my potential list of, of things to dig into today. Um, sort of what does is, what is teaching and learning look like in a kind of concrete way? in the context of liberal education, you know, in, in Brand's book, she has this understanding of what she calls inquiry, this sort of particular posture towards, towards a subject matter that requires a certain kind of discussion. You know, she, she ends up making the case for, um, you know, not a, not a huge surprise, something like the St. John's 
model. You know, from what I know about Hannah Arendt and, and Strauss, I mean, uh, Arendt's syllabi are, are often posted online and they're, you know, quite, quite demanding. And you can, you know, I've even talked to people who've heard her, her lecture. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what Oakshot's pedagogical approach was, but uh, it certainly doesn't seem like, um, you know, everyone, everyone who's interested in liberal education thinks that you have to have this Socratic discussion-based model. Um, and so what, I guess I wanted to talk for a few minutes about what sort of teaching looks like. I know for, for Strauss, it was kind of embody the, as much as you can, the interior thought of the thinker that you're studying. And, um, but mm -hmm. I, presumably he thought a 50 minute lecture could be delivered and answer a few questions and that would work right so um not I don't know really I, he never he never hardly ever lectured oh okay interesting. Uh, uh he didn't lecture he he tended to um uh comment on the text uh, in other words uh, the focus in strauss's classes always was on the text and not even on his big constructs about the text but it would be his attempt go through we We'd read aloud, or he would uh, actually in his later years, when we were students of his, he had a reader, uh, a fellow with a wonderful voice, who would read a passage that he would ask him to read. And then Strauss would comment on it and would invite was, you know, comments from the students if they had any. And it would be it would be putting together the story from these pieces, these little things. Mm. And he hardly ever lectured. Occasionally he would give a, I don't know, 15 minute. Uh, kind of a mini lecture that would, right. you know, pull together some of the threads that we had been talking about. But I, except for the one class that he that he taught where he did lecture, but right. in, in many many, uh, uh, yeah, most of the time he did not. He taught seminars, which worked just as I just described. But the but the key, I guess, pedagogical fact then would have been the coming back to the text and making sure people. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, here I think uh, you know in Rita's original podcast where she spoke about the authority of the teacher in his in his or her knowledge, uh, I I mean I think Strauss depended a lot on that that he, you know we we all kind of expected that he knew more than we did, and he didn't disappoint us by know by knowing less than we did, so um, that that was how the class would work because people came in respecting his knowledge and he. I think earned that respect by what he did in class. So, so it was. So I guess that's an interesting question right there. I mean, how much how much of it did did Strauss's success relate to the fact that you know people are already well disposed toward toward him at the very beginning of class, or was it these you know little bits, you know, a five minute, ten minute riff on this or that piece of a text that would just think, oh my gosh, this is someone we need to to pay attention to. I mean, you suggested sort of both, Michael, I guess. But yeah. yeah, Catherine. And I guess I have two comments. So one is that Strauss was teaching primarily graduate students and that's very different from teaching Yeah, that's important. Mm -hmm. um, and second, uh, he's, was in, so he conveyed, for example, the importance of learning languages by showing his students regularly how much difference it made when you read the text in the original language. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd, he'd have this fellow whose name I now escapes me uh, read the text, but then Strauss would say, oh, no, 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 that it really says X, Y, or Z. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, yeah. I had just one small point about uh, the, to uh, respond to your immediate question. Some years ago, there was a, a conference at UC University of Chicago on Strauss as a teacher, and many students from back, you know, believe it or not, much older than we are, who came back and talked about their discovery of Strauss. People like Ralph Lerner, who, who's uh, you know a fair amount older, and and. For them, they, Strauss was, they did not expect, they didn't know anything. He had no reputation. He just was a guy. Right, who they right, class. right. Yeah, yeah. And they talked about how the stuff he did in class is what really attracted them and that they saw. So we came primed uh, in a way which I think was a disadvantage for us in some ways. We would have been better off less primed. But but so they talked about the experience of the original, you know, confrontation or of Strauss, yeah. Uh, Elizabeth and Rita, do you all have thoughts on kind of what teaching looks like in the context of liberal education or should or Elizabeth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up. I'm, I'm teaching a class right now um, that is called What is Liberal Education? And we are we've spent the, the semester with Strauss, Oakeshott, um, Joseph Pieper, um, Leon Cass and others. And now we're turning to to critical pedagogy and What's interesting to me is the way in which the modern academy really discourages, uh, I mean, that, that people make fun of lecturers. You know, it's, you're not the sage on the stage. You need to be the facilitator of conversation. The uh, guide on is, the side. That, yes, exactly, exactly. So there's this- I heard that, that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this notion that you can never um, stand up and, and, and say anything to the students uh, from, a, from a point of view of knowledge. And that comes out of um, this critical pedagogy movement. But to me, I mean, I think I think what's what's interesting about the way uh, the, the Zuckerts both describe Strauss is that, yes, he was engaged in in commenting on the text and eliciting comments from the students. But there were passages of lecture. And I, and I think I think the most important thing for us to remember in the Contemporary Academy is that uh, there there may be times when it is necessary to just simply impart uh, something that you know that the students do not know. In some classes, that's very much the case. I mean, um, imagine a, a biology class. I cannot imagine a biology class based on discussion. And so the, the critical <laughs> pedagogy world seems to kind of forget the fact that we actually we're not all in sociology. Uh, and so we need to have um, we need to have different modes of, of teaching and learning. And sometimes those are Socratic discussion, uh, but not always. Rita, any any thoughts? Well, I mean, this is this is basically, I think, Arendt's insight again into more pr primary schooling in her essay, but <clears throat> that a knowledge commands authority, right? It doesn't coerce authority, uh, and it doesn't, you know, it's just it's so impressive to people. And the reason, I mean, the you know, why does that work? It you know, it rests on a kind of this sort of platonic insight that people desire knowledge. And that that in itself is, is a kind of motivation for all human beings. Um, certainly people who have voluntarily made themselves students at the university, right? I mean, that goes even beyond the seven-year-old who is coerced into going to school. Um, so, you know, the, the desire for knowledge when it's satisfied by somebody, right, commands a kind of respect, maybe reverence, um, but at least respect uh, for their authority that that then sort of, you know, it, it can go in different directions. And I think that we have this tendency, again, kind of a, a relic or an artifact of the dominance of kind of progressive pedagogical ways of thinking about teaching to think that 
knowledge or is facts or it's like a kind of recitation of facts and that is in itself dry and dull um but i mean i think that uh you know michael and catherine's point is well taken that like actually what is going on in a in a university humanities or social sciences course often has nothing to do with facts it's about demonstrating how to read a text uh, and that is actually a knowledge, right? It's just not a kind of factual knowledge of a you know, litany of facts about something, but it's a kind of demonstration via commentary on a text of what you could see in the text if you knew how to read it better, which as a student, you do not because you've never tried doing such a thing, right? And as a model for how to do it when you try to do it yourself. And that too is a form of knowledge. And I think that's actually for most students at, at the university level, when they try to think back to like who was a very impressive professor, who was a really formative professor for them, it's usually the kind of the person who showed them, often by lecturing, sometimes through discussion, but even when with a discussion or a kind of Socratic method, there's a goal at the end. It's not really open-ended in the sense that like you want to hear what all your students think and then we'll just leave it at that, right? It's about channeling the comments of the students towards a conclusion that you have already determined in advance, um, that that what what they learned from that is how to read which i think is the essential thing for liberal education right is that you have to figure out how to read a text at a level that is not like the level that's usually taught in grade school secondary school uh, and so that that's a kind of authority via knowledge that's not what we often visualize or conceptualize when somebody says i'm going to give you a lecture Right, that's like electron biology and the parts of a plant or something like that. But that, in fact, the authority and of knowledge in a human humanities sort of social sciences context is the the modeling of how to read a text. I wonder if that makes it all the more important to go back to something that Michael mentioned early in the in the conversation. All the more important to try to provide some kind of framing in terms of making the case for for why whatever you're studying matters right just thinking that students are just awash in information constantly stuff streaming at them and it's it must be hard to try to you know sift through the you know what's important and what do i really need to know and what's you know what's stuff that i could kind of do without and um may, maybe that makes the the initial pitch, you know, all, all the more important that you can't just assume that uh, the delights of, of Plato are going to be obvious once you start into it, but you gotta, you gotta really hit them over the head right away. I don't, I don't know. That was just a thought I had as, as Rita was talking. But um, The thing about Plato is, is you just pick it up in the first sentence, there's always something interesting. So you right. can get them right into it. You don't have to give them a lot of, a lot of uh, right. priming. You just do it, do it. It's yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Went down to the Piraeus, and, and there's a ton of stuff right there. One year on the on the first the sentence. Piraeus. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you have to clean that a little bit. Yeah. What What about? Uh, oh, go ahead, Catherine. Yeah, please. No, I well, I was just going to ask Elizabeth. Um, how did Michael Oakshot teach? That's an interesting question, and I'm actually not entirely sure. My sense is that he. He conducted lectures. He, he was mostly at the LSE, um, and he he had a, a famous series of seminars on the history of political thought. And I think he did give lectures. Uh, Tim Fuller, of course, would be the person to, to know about this. But but outside of the classroom, he was very conversational. I mean, he's got this whole image of um, the 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 conversation as the metaphor for for real education, which some people love and some people think is too um, just sort of, sort of too loose, but 
but I know that he was a fantastic conversationalist. So uh, my my sense is that probably he he uh, observed a more traditional role in the classroom, but then you know outside of the classroom, which was very important to him and his students, he was he was very much a kind of a seminar person. Um, maybe we can move to the to another question I wanted to discuss in the context of all the the thinkers. You know, Eva Brand says there's there's going to be a paradox of utility. Right, that uh, and, and I think Strauss has a kind of version of this that liberal education can and should be pursued in the context of a mass democracy to provide a kind of antidote. So it's going to yield yield a kind of civic civic good. And and I wasn't sure what what Oakshot and, and Arendt w- would say about this. Um, I I also did an episode with some authors of recent books on liberal education. Zena Hitz, who, who emphasizes that liberal education really has to be understood as a good in and of itself and right really wants to to attack utility as something we need to to overcome and uh jonathan mark sort of took the opposite tack and said you know if, if you get someone who's attracted to uh education in the way that kind of benjamin franklin was that's not the worst thing in the world and it it seemed they both told me that it's, they were sort of put off by what they perceived as kind of the dominant answer to that question. So Zena got sick of the utility arguments and Jonathan got sick of, you know, it has to be this pure thing. And so he argued the opposite. Um, so I just wondered what, what um, you know, try, try to put that in the context of these, these authors. Uh, maybe we'll start with Elizabeth. Did, did Oakshot um, have, have a kind of strong inclination one, one way or the other? Did he think to be properly pursued, it had to be um, pursued as a good in and of itself, or or was he fine with it being pursued for the sake of of some um, you know civic purpose or some other purpose? Well, Oakshot would would be on the Zena Hitz side of things. I think in general that his idea, of course, was that um, there were a variety of modes in which you could see the world and you can you can look at the world practically. You know, desires and aversions, moral uh, moral categories. You can look at the world through the through the lens of science. You can look at the the world aesthetically, um, in, in a disposition of uh, appreciation. And I think he would probably put liberal education in the in the aesthetic mode. Not just that it's this sort of dilettantism, but that the way to approach a text is very much. Um, and this would of course overlap with Strauss and probably all the others. Um, is that you get inside the mind of the author and you try to understand that person as he understood himself and and so on. Um, and also that the the conversation of of sort of the civilized Western inheritance, which he was not afraid to defend, um, was something that um, that was to be engaged in for its own sake. And not everything had to be put in the service of utility. and And I think in a way, he's channeling uh, John Henry Newman um, in the idea of a university who said, you know, look, the the there is a the the intellectual life satisfies a direct need of our nature, he says. And, and it may do a lot of other things besides. I he I think Newman and Oakshot would have said, actually, there, there are a lot of civic goods that come from a liberal education, but those are not exactly incidental, but those are not the reason you you per, pursue the education. Um, these these are habits of uh, again, as I've said before, deference, um, willingness to be re- refuted. This this comes about if as you are liberally educated, and it probably makes you a better citizen. But never is the education understood to form citizens for uh, political participation. 
So ultimately, right. he I think he thought that there were these these goods that would would come, but they were not the reason for doing the thing in the first place. Yeah, that that seems to what to be the way that Eva Brand um, thinks about it too. That it's a the the civic goods are a happy accident, but that's not the the reason why one engaged in it in the in the first place. I guess Catherine or, or Michael. I mean, although or um, although Strauss emphasizes both, does he? I, I don't remember him excluding the possibility that it could be pursued for the purpose of of the goods, but I don't know. What do you What do you think? It seems to me that um, that, that Strauss's stance is very much like um, the stance that Elizabeth just um, attributed to Oakshaw. Yeah. That is um, liberal education, um, and Strauss goes back to the Greeks and and says this was the education that people who had the leisure undertook for its own sake. This is, this is an education that makes you a full human being. And those who have this wonderful opportunity who are few would take it. Um, and that's why he sees liberal education as possibly being an antidote to some of the tendencies of, of modern mass democracy. Um, and, uh, in particular, he thinks the hope for us is not that everybody's going to be liberally educated. Um, you know, most people have to earn a living, and he recognized that. Uh, but that some people can take this wonderful opportunity that a liberal democracy um, offers, and it could have the, the benefit to the liberal democracy that the people who take this opportunity, it's the same kind of indirect effect, will become better citizens, but it's not citizenship training. Mm -hmm. Is that, um, Michael, you, you mentioned earlier the different, you know, we, we face today a much different context than, than Strauss or Oakshot. I mean, Oakshot's essays were, I think, roughly around that that time too. So, I mean, part of me thinks, well, maybe the good in itself argument, maybe that's not good enough or, or I don't know, not good enough isn't quite right, but maybe that's just not appropriate to our situation. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would, on, on pain of disrupting my domestic tranquility, disagree a little bit with what Catherine just said. Um, because I think for Strauss, the duty to educate for the good of society was a positive part of the of the responsibility of the philosopher or the educator. He had, you know, my favorite Strauss book is called The City and Man. And that captures, I think, his two, the two poles of his thinking that for man, what is good for a human individual, a human being, that's learning for its own sake, that's philosophy ultimately. But the city also had its demands and that the philosopher has a responsibility to, re to respond to those in a number of ways, one of which is not to try to be disruptive or harmful to it, but on the other side to try to do some good for it. Rita, you want to weigh in on this? Um, I mean, I actually find this kind of a difficult question to answer, which maybe betrays my ignorance about Arendt, but I'm not sure that there is anywhere where she says what the purpose of education is in a democratic society. Um, I mean, you, you know, maybe in the human condition, she sort of gets closer to answering that question. 
Um, I mean, she's very concerned about mass society and the sort of, you know, uh, mid-century general concern with mass society, you know, David Reisman and people like that, um, and, and the distortions that that imposes on people. But in the essay on education, I mean, she's really speaking almost remedially, right? I mean, this is a kind of a response to books like Why Johnny Can't Read um, and, uh, you know, the, the uh, launching of Sputnik by the Soviets. Uh, and so the, the, the problem in, the, in American discourse just becomes like, why is our education so terrible? Uh, and not what should its highest possible aim be. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and she's sort of answering that that concern with a discussion of, you know, sort of what ails education writ large, you know, again, primary and secondary education writ large without really articulating what the, the highest possible goals of the best sort of education would be. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm sort of hesitant to answer what she would say about that, because, you know, if you extrapolate from sort of the German gymnasium, then it is a very elitist vision of a, of a kind of, you know, natural aristocracy that's, that's, you know, identified and sort of channeled by ins educational institutions. But I don't want to uh, necessarily say that that's her position or that's what she thinks is right for America, because I don't I don't think we have evidence for that. That would just be a kind of extrapolation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, one one thing about Arendt that um, too that that struck me may, maybe this was in part from what you emphasized in in your episode, Rita, too, is the and maybe this fits with Oakshot. Seems like they and I, I don't know about about Strauss on this question, but I mean, maybe another way to frame my, my question is just the sort of the benefits of the the relative benefits of the importance of a kind of general education. Right, one extreme version of it would be the St. John's model, but one can think of a more moderate kind of general curriculum that everyone needs to take, or the the, the need to kind of master subjects through a, through a real deep study immersion in a discipline, right? And and Rita, remember you emphasized kind of the 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 need for um, students to know concrete things about the world, which would you know make them just better able to navigate the world, whatever they plan on doing. So you needed, I think your example was you need to know what the French revolution was because it had all of these, these effects. Um, and then the way to sort of study and think about the French revolution might be, you know, an immersion of a, a in a department and a discipline. So may, maybe that's another question that might be worth ling lingering on. What, what do we think these, these thinkers might've emphasized um, about the, the relative, um, promise of a kind of general curriculum versus, you know, the, the need to kind of master a, a particular discipline in a deep way. Yeah, Elizabeth. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think there are probably for like, for maybe for Strauss, Arendt, Vogel and Oakeshott, I mean, these, these, these people were really remarkable, um, remarkable intellects and could do a lot at a very deep level. But I, I don't think all of us are the are those people. So what what does that mean for those of us who are not um, perhaps you know these towering figures? Well, I think I think one answer might be again to go back to Newman because I think Newman is so instructive here that we need to be aware that there is a whole, as he puts it, a circle of knowledge that is full of 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 all the disciplines in the university, including theology. He will say, of course but that no one undergraduate is able to, uh, to really plumb the depths of, that, of, of, any, of all those, uh, those disciplines in that circle. What we can do though is 
I mean, I think the ideal, and this is in the abstract and it's not, I'm not going to talk about how we would do it in any given curriculum, but but his his advice is to go deeply into one, uh, really know a field well, and be aware of the others to the extent that you do not then think because you're an expert in the one that you can pontificate about all the others. He says, you know, the, the biggest danger is becoming a man of one idea. You know, the, the doctor who thinks because he's an excellent doctor that he can tell you about politics, uh, you know, and everything else. I, I think if we could keep in mind that there is the possibility of undergraduates learning quite a bit about some one thing, but also knowing where they where they have gaps, where they don't know uh, everything that's out there is, is a wonderful that would be good for our sort of contemporary conversation uh, in public if people were a little bit more deferential to other people who might know things they don't. So right. it's a kind of learning and, and intellectual humility, uh, but also knowing things too, not just saying, I don't know anything. Right. Yeah. And just, I was reminded too of, of Strauss's um, emphasis in the, I think it's the liberal education responsibility essay on the, um, the results of an over, specialization right he's he's clear that that has some pretty negative effects on sort of the democratic world i guess Strauss certainly took for granted that people would know things about the world not and things that he hadn't taught them so he he but i i think uh we talked about this in the original podcast he, he tended not to be a projector of curricula he didn't to my knowledge ever lay out you know here's what the college curriculum should look like yeah uh but he seemed to take for granted that there was a legitimate place for all of the regular disciplines and that one would learn them in the normal way. I think he he would have thought history was a particularly important supplement to philosophy. Um, yeah. So at least those two departments, he would, I think, give full support to. Right. Um, but no, the science, I mean, the natural sciences, I mean, he was not a Luddite. He, he, he saw the importance of science. Right. And Rita, he and didn't Arendt taught in a bunch of different departments, which or which I, I don't think she was always in a philosophy department. I, I don't think. Right? I mean, she was in social thought at Chicago. What that's yeah. not really a discipline. Um, she was at the New School, which also was kind of a little bit anti-disciplinary. Yeah. Um, but that that has to do with those institutions, maybe more than right. you know. She was tr certainly trained in a discipline um, in the German system, and that's a highly disciplinary system. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure, again, I, I just, I'm not sure that she ever made any comments on, on those sorts of questions in an extended way that, that makes it valid to sort of extrapolate anything right. she said in the essay on education to those yeah. questions. Right. Any, I, I guess, getting close to, to the end of, uh, end of our time here, I guess one interesting thing I'd be curious about if, if, um, and, and Rita, if, if you, you don't need to rely on just that, the education essay, if you know other places in our rent where that might relevant for this question, but um, what are the kind of biggest kind of points of contrast um, maybe among these these authors? Are there areas where, you know, Oakshot and Strauss or Strauss and Arendt, right? I mean, it's sort of obvious where they might have disagreed um, in, in just in an interesting way on on some something relevant to the, this question of education. Um, it seems to me that um, even though they're uh, Strauss and Oakshot are not, um, not neither of them emphasize tradition. I, I would suspect that Oakshot is friendlier to the question of needing to frame things in in terms of 
initiation and in the traditions and whereas Strauss seems much more interested in pushing pushing against that um I guess that would be my initial thought on a point of contrast but I'd, I'd just be curious any other points of contrast that that you all can think of well go ahead Elizabeth yeah yeah you know you asked for points of contrast and and I'm not going to answer that question I'm going to answer uh points of commonality. I mean, I think one thing that they probably all took for granted, and as, as Michael said earlier, that we cannot take for granted today is that um, is that there is something in the tradition worthy of study. Um, I mean, the criticism can come later, but but there there is a good in the in the Western intellectual intellectual tradition. And I feel like our situation now is different in the sense that we we have to kind of make that case that the tradition itself, you know, even if we're not talking about a tradition, but that, you know, the works of political philosophy or the works of art hist- of, our, of artists over the course of art history are worth studying. And, and there is this tendency, uh, you know, among critical theorists to say, well, yeah, that stuff's all shot through with, with prejudice and bigotry. And we, we're just going to start with, with now and, and go forward from there. And I think Strauss, Vogelin, Oakeshott, Arendt would have thought that was ludicrous. I mean, they should. I, I think it's ludicrous. But we face in the present day the burden of having to to make that case to students, which I doubt they they had to do. Yeah, Rita. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of contrast between Arendt and Strauss philosophically. But but I I agree um, with Elizabeth that on this question of education, I mean, they both saw a kind of crisis of modernity, um, and that this crisis of modernity, you know, the the, the World War II is the kind of final moment in which this is obvious to everybody now totalitarianism is the the crisis of modernity in many ways where all of the maybe problematic streams of modern thought came together in the most sort of disastrous possible way um and you know where what you know Arendt's view of education is kind of the exception in many ways to the rest of her thought it is very conservative and she is very explicit in saying that this you know we have to be conservative about education in order to sort of save liberalism everywhere else in every other sphere so there I mean I think there's more overlap on this question of education between all of these thinkers that Arendt might otherwise have in common with them about other philosophical or political questions. Mm-hmm. She she also has a um, interesting critique uh, of social science, and she uses sort of the social scientific uh, study of concentration camps to show the you know the limits of what she thinks um, social science can tell us. So there's another kind of interesting point of contrast between her and Strauss. I mean, it's not as I don't think her critique is um, sustained right over the course of as many different essays and books as as Strauss's, but um, there there are still a couple places where she really seems kind of annoyed by the pretensions of the of the. Well, social she scientists. she has a pretty yeah. expansive critique of modern science actually in the human yeah. condition, um, and the the desire to go to space she sees as especially a bizarre perversion of. Oh. Uh, of a humanistic approach to politics. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little more expanded, but it's not it's not exactly like Strauss's, but it has some commonalities. And I think those actually might be traceable to Heidegger. Hmm. Interesting. Um, well, Catherine Strauss, yeah, Michael, yeah. Well, Strauss did uh, use the example of concentration camps, if I remember correctly, to point out the limitations of social science that you, you can't even begin to describe social uh, concentration camps without using value-laden terms and that the social scientists in fact do that without necessarily being fully aware of what they're doing 
And so there's a kind of self-refuting character, he would say to the social science positivism and that maybe not be the same that Arendt was getting at, but, but that is a point. And I think what Rita's right, certainly Strauss and Arendt disagreed about a lot of things. I mean, um, I think Arendt remained closer to Heidegger in her sort of more, the more philosophic side of her thinking than Strauss did, even though Strauss was, in our opinion, quite influenced and, and did, Heidegger was an important point of reference for him, both positively and negatively. So Strauss was much more open to what we might call the metaphysical side of philosophy than I think, than I think Arendt was. Not necessarily as it was developed in the tradition, but it, in its deepest mm-hmm. aspirations or deepest commitments. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Catherine, yeah, please. Um, I guess I, I would throw out what seems to me to be a common element, um, and that is uh, all of these thinkers, um, maybe in different ways, but even you know the human condition, um, on human conduct, um, think that there is something particularly human that um, we are, but also that has to be studied in a different way from the model of modern natural science. Yeah, yeah, you can you see it even the, in the titles, right, right. That's That might be a good place to end on. Uh, well, I thank you all for being, uh, I guess, initial participants in the in the first podcast, and thanks for for coming back on today to to talk about Oakshot, Strauss, and Arendt. Thank you. Great talking to you. All right. You've been listening to Enduring Interest, a podcast sponsored by the Zephyr Institute. The Zephyr Institute is a community of scholars, students, and professionals committed to gaining a fuller understanding of the human person and the common good. For more information about Zephyr and its programming, go to zephyr.org. That's Z-E-P-H-I-R.org. Please follow Enduring Interest on Twitter, where you can find information about past and future episodes, and message us, please, to recommend guests or books. Our Twitter handle is at the EIPod. That's T-H-E-E-I-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time on Enduring Interest.